Dan Enden. Are we recording already? Welcome back. Oh my God. To the Movie Blues Podcast with Dan and Dan. TM, copyright, season six, TM, copyright. Yeah, so season six is going to be uh, a little bit less scheduled. <laughs> yeah, I, what I my, my plan for season six at this point is going to be, uh, yes, the episodes are going to be very far apart, but uh, maximum preparation, yeah. maximum games, Quality maximum over fun. quantity. Um, and to kick that sentiment off, I have a special introduction um, that was given to us for season six. So, if you don't mind coming over to my side of the pod thing, please bring your headphones. Okay. Um, so, today we're doing a Clockwork Orange, I believe, okay. um, first, so you know. Ah, I didn't. So, you're not confused by this uh, intro into thinking that it's going to be Hunter Biden. Okay, glad I didn't mention 9-11 yet. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the star of Star Trek Generations and Tank Girl... And Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell. Hello, this is for the two Dans. From one Dan to another. How are you? I hope you're well. This is to celebrate the new season of your movie podcast. That sounds really cool. Um, sounds fantastic, actually. And um, I wish I could listen to it. Maybe I will. Um, all the success with it. Um, I don't know what season you're in, but anyway... Whatever it is, you must be uh, reasonably successful because you're continuing on. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> That's really beautiful. And also thank you for being fans because I always uh, have time for my fans because without them, of course, really one wouldn't have the career that uh, I've been very lucky to have. I really am privileged and fortunate, you know. Um, <laughs> made some great movies along the way with, you know, some very great directors. Lindsay Anderson, who I made three movies with and did numerous plays, theater pieces. Um, <clears throat> great man. And he introduced me because I starred in um, my first movie, which was directed by Lindsay Anderson, called If. And Kubrick saw the movie and cast me immediately as Alex in Clockwork Orange. Uh, which was very fortunate for me. Um, his uh, widow told me, many years after I'd made the movie, by the way, she said that Stanley um, had a projectionist on call 24-7. And when a movie came out, they'd send a copy of the print up to his house and he'd watch it. And he'd been waiting for this. Uh, he'd heard a lot about If, and he was very anxious to see it and finally it arrived and they laced it up and started the film apparently this is what Christiana Kubrick told me uh, I played my first scene coming back from the holidays to school and um, Stanley saw the first scene hit the intercom button and told the projectionist to relace it started again and he saw it, the scene, again, three times. And after the third time, he turned to his wife and said, we found our Alex. Lucky for me. How amazing it should happen like that. Uh, so, uh, and I got to work with the very great um, Kubrick, very different man to 
Lindsay Anderson. Stanley was um, really not interested in the, you know, acting and actor prepares and all that. And he just, um, you know, he was more, way more interested in the look and all the technical aspect of the lights and the sound and all that. And he was a master at that, absolutely brilliant. And in a way gave me a great gift of saying, show me. Um, so there it is. Anyway, um, I'm blathering on here. <clears throat> but anyway, thank you very much for uh, reaching out. And I hope your new season is a great success. So from me, that is Malcolm McDowell, to the two Dans, have a wonderful season and very best wishes. Bye-bye. Hey! Dan looks mortified right now. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that was Malcolm McDowell. Welcome to season six of the Movie Blues Podcast. theme by Dan Lyons. No help from Chris Duranda. You are a sick fuck. <laughs> That's fucking Terrence from Entourage. That was Terrence from Entourage um, saying what's up to us at the Movie Blues podcast. He was going to come here in person, but ultimately the Queen's death interfered with uh, his ability to leave the country. So... <laughs> That was is that what you were you were saying? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that just fucked me up a I, lot. I bet. <laughs> um I hope you enjoyed that. That was a special uh present for you. That was the greatest. Um anyway, uh Dan, welcome to season six of the Movie Blues Podcast. Hopefully that didn't throw you for too too much. Of I was gonna say I'm so fucking frazzled right now. Yeah, I have a way of um at, especially at the beginning of seasons, like <laughs> Dan has this notion that he's going to just like waltz into the basement. Everything's <laughs> going to be totally normal. Um, I, I like to shock him, throw him in the ice water sometimes. That was, uh, you know, one of those days. God, uh, I wasn't expecting him to just fucking say your name. Start talking about <laughs> you. It, no, the movie <laughs> If at length. Yeah, he really went into If. I it makes me want to watch If. Oh, you, dude. Kill. I've never seen it. Fantastic. Yeah. You can uh, check it out on your local Criterion channel. Is that a Criterion boy? It is. Hmm. Um, it's a fantastic film. And, well, it, and you can tell he's told this story about a thousand times because yeah. I've listened to his commentary track for the Clockwork Orange. And uh, he tells that story like three times in the fucking commentary track. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, great movie. Yeah, I have not seen that one. I would like to. Um, it's mentioned multiple times in the making of uh, Doc that I watched. So. Oh yeah, uh, you're talking about the French one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I watched that as well. Now, if Dan wants to, 
what he can do is later in the season make me watch If. Because after this block of episodes uh, that we are starting today, which will be uh, this week's Clockwork Orange, which is something we've been brewing up for a long time, and then next week's um, My Son Hunter, a movie about Hunter Biden uh, and his crack adventures, um, that, that was more of a, like, ooh, this is hot and what's going down in hell. Let's watch this. And um, after that, though, we'll be kicking off more of a showdown vibe for yeah. the season. Um, bringing it back. Much more of like a jigsaw vibe. Let the game begin. Where we'll be like, I'll be bringing a movie, he'll be bringing a movie every week. No exceptions, no rejections, no rules, baby. Yeah, I'm not going to do that with If. I don't think If's very potable. It's just a good, boring British movie. I'm going to make you watch Lemon. You ever see that? No. That's... um a movie that uh, I had to watch in my film aesthetics and analysis class. It's just one solitary stationary shot of a lemon and they project different lighting patterns on it for an hour. And we're going to talk about that. Lemon, ladies and gentlemen. I had to write a paper on it, so obviously we could do a, a hot hour. I fucking hate shit like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we're going to start today with our second Stanley Kubrick film. Um, the first one that we did was Barry Lyndon, which I think we... I gave a 10, and maybe you gave a 9. Uh, let's check the scoreboard, which we have for the entire podcast. It looks like... Um, you gave a 10, I gave a 9. 10 and a 9. So, uh, wondering what today will be, because today's Kubrick film is a very different experience. Yeah, we, also, we also, in that episode, uh, I believe, went through the entire Kubrick filmography and gave everything scores. And huh. you were much lower on Clockwork Orange than I was. Yes. Probably. Um, I think I remember that being part of the discussion. Um, and, you know, what we like to do with the podcast is no matter how many times we've seen a movie, which Dan and I have probably seen Clockwork Orange 30 to 40 times each. Easily. Yeah, easily. 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 Um, this might be the movie that we've seen the most on the podcast, other than maybe some of the... Do we do any... Well, we did like Jersey Girl. I don't. I doubt you've seen Jersey Girl as many times as you've seen Clockwork Orange. At no, least I but hope so. I've definitely seen Grind as much as I've seen Clockwork. Grind. <laughs> when I was looking through the list, I was like, I wonder if he's seen Grind as many times as he's seen a Clockwork. Pro- probably more honestly, because <laughs> Grind was um that was like of the era where like all I owned was like nine DVDs because I was eleven. Right. And I watched them over and over and over. However, Clockwork Orange was also part of that. Hmm. Those eleven DVDs. But it just went from 9 to 11. And that brings us to our next point. Happy 9-11, Dan. Happy 9-11. I mean, what are you supposed I to say? I was trying to be subtle there. Oh, oh, you were actually doing a bit? Yeah. Oh, okay, well, so was Osama bin Laden. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. R slash um, conspiracy this theory, this morning was quite the ride. Was it? Um, they were doing, <laughs> uh, in commemoration of 9-11, um, What's your uh? What's the least believable theory about nine eleven, mm-hmm. and what's the most believable theory? And every comment was like, "What's the least believable theory?" <laughs> that that fifteen seventies hijacked plane that flew them into the towers. Um, least uh, yeah. So uh, I I was thinking uh, I was gonna try to throw you for a loop. Where are you now? But I thought we were going to... I figured this would wait for the next episode. Yes, we're going to do all of our 9-11 stuff in, in My Son Hunter uh, next week's episode. Okay, but all right, by that point, it's going to be like a month away from 9-11. Whatever, fuck it. Okay. Do you think that people like on 9-11 itself go out and are like, I need a 9-11 comedy podcast for today? Well, it's not like they're going to hear the podcast today. It's Yeah, that's true, too. 
So we should just not. We should just not do this. Save it for the Patreon. We should just save. Shut this down. Yeah. Um, Clockwork Orange. Um, a lot of people lost their lives. A lot of firefighters. <clears throat> Why you got to stab me with that knife? <laughs> <laughs> Why you got to cut right into my heart? Um, <sighs> fuck firefighters. And anyway, I'm Dan Enden, and this was the Movie Blues podcast. <laughs> Even on 9-11, you have to fucking uphold your firefighter oh, no. shit. <laughs> oh, you know, I didn't really exactly make that connection. If there was one day to drop oh. your goddamn anti-firefighter I, bit, it's yeah. today. <laughs> uh, we need to lean into other classic bits then. Uh, uh, changing gears. I ain't divorce crazy. Like... <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, if you're wondering now, I'm sampling us, so this Hell can, yeah. might get confusing. Yeah. I was not just cackling in laughter. That was from the uh, Chris Rock Spiral episode. Please check it out at your local Barnes & Noble. Uh, <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that through headphones. That's a good voice. That's a good one, right? <laughs> I ain't divorce crazy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing Chris Rock two weeks from today. Fuck that. <laughs> I thought that got canceled. <laughs> no. And oh no, that's the Demi Lovato concert got canceled, or that you can't go to, or can you? Um, it's not that I can't go to; it's that the Mets are likely going to be in the playoffs during that time. Oh, I thought you were. going to But say, if they're not, then I'm going to Demi Lovato. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, um, it's not that I can't go; it's that I shouldn't. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go probably. Nice, nice. Trans rights deducted. Um, thank you, Halo God announcer, for uh, your opinion on trans rights. Yikes. Um, from Cameo also. <laughs> Somebody had him say that. Anyway. Um, what? Welcome back to season six of the Movie News <laughs> Podcast. Today. <laughs> Is that real? Yeah. Today we will be talking about uh, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Um, this is kind of like uh, we said that we were going to stop doing movies like this. And by this, I mean rape movies <laughs> in, in 5B. But this is like. A classic rape yeah, movie. Yeah, no, this is this like, is like the rape. This movie. is not movies. This is not a movie whose sole intent is to upset me. Well, <laughs> a lot of other people didn't feel that way when it, <laughs> when this movie came out. Yeah, shortly. a bunch of fucking goddamn Tory nerds. Um, why don't we start macro? Yeah, then head into the micro. Yeah. Um, I think m- most people could assume that Dan Enden would latch onto a movie about a youth who uh, hates his parents, uh, acts out <laughs> constantly with violence, and whose only solace is listening to LPs. But, Dan, why don't you tell us why you like A Clockwork Orange, and how did that change or not change this time around? Macro, baby. Um, I, I've said before, Clockwork Orange is the movie that got me into movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the, fir- the first movie, like real movie that I saw in my life was Pulp Fiction. My older cousin showed it to me when I was 12 or 11, somewhere around there. Um, that it's... led me to go on the internet and be like, what are movies that are kind of like Pulp Fiction? Sure. S- somehow in that process, I ended up at Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, I was home alone a lot in the summer, and I had On Demand. And I found Clockwork Orange, mm-hmm. as uh, has been a recurring theme in this podcast, I saw that it was listed as rated R for nudity. Oh, my God, Dan. (laughs) We all can assume which parts of your spank bank are on display in this podcast. You don't always have to say it. So I I threw this on. The opening scene came up, and I was like, what the fuck is happening here? 
Um, and I was very engaged visually. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what was happening in this movie. Really? Uh, but was very fucking enamored by how it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, went out. With, next time I went to Best Buy, got the DVD. Uh, and I watched the ever-loving shit out of it. Sure. So this was uh, seventh grade. I'd say I watched Clockwork Orange with pretty regularity from between seventh grade and, like, sophomore year of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a Clockwork Orange poster. Same. Um, I had a Clockwork Orange poster in my dorm room, um, which got very diametrically opposed reactions depending on what girl I brought back to my dorm room. Um, and yeah, that's my, that's my large scale thing. Love it. Loved it. Always have loved it. It's, I definitely see it as the movie that opened me up to the idea of real movies. Um, (laughs) oh, I read, I read the book also. Right. Um, tried to read it in middle school. Didn't understand what the fuck was going on despite having seen the movie so many times. Right. Well, just for, for the, uh, listeners sake, um, the novel is written in the, uh, made up slang language, um, that, populates most of the dialogue of the film uh for anybody who hasn't tried reading the book it is a steep yeah. learning it's curve. dense as fuck it has like a dictionary in the yeah. back which mm-hmm. like i don't have time for that i never have well the um, dictionary is just explaining the terms yeah like slushied yeah and vidi yeah. um and other such terms that are used throughout the film yeah. because people found it so inaccessible um as a read and then Kubrick worried about it being inaccessible as a watch um, and had to kind of toe the line between nonsense, gibberish language, uh, which is a combination of, I believe, Russian slang, mostly um, because communism (laughs) is a big, (laughs) big dish on the menu in this one uh, in the background. And um, yeah, uh, it's interesting for for those reasons. And uh, big balls on Kubrick for including so much of it in what was his first script he ever wrote, which was Clockwork Orange. Just bananas to read this book and be like, yeah, I should make a movie of this. Well, that's, I mean, look, uh, Kubrick's done, I think it is 11 adaptations in total. Yeah. Which, compared to his overall filmography, is like 80, 90%. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas I would find that cheapening for most directors, I think Kubrick uh, gets the points because... His adaptations, A, can sometimes be so different, but B, he's adapting things that, like, Jesus Christ, nobody would have ever adapted. I mean, yeah. even, even 2001 A Space Odyssey, when you read that book, you're like, this might be an HBO show, but, like, how the fuck did somebody make a singular movie out of this in, like, yeah. the 1960s? It's fucking insane. Um, so, yeah. And Kubrick this movie's, like, like, incredibly faithful to the book. Mm-hmm. Which is just wild. It is. It's similar. I would say uh, if you had to pull a similarity as close as you could in almost all ways, um, American Psycho, I think, is the best comparison. Because just like American Psycho, the novel of Clockwork Orange, the violence is worse. The ages are upsetting. The implications are darker. But, like, the idea and the spirit is captured. Mm. Um, The violence... It's not portrayed in the same way, like in, in Clockwork Orange, the book. Um, he, you know, he's like raping like a 10-year-old. He's beating up and raping an old woman. Like the woman at the health clinic in the film is like, I would say, 50s or so and is in pretty good shape. But in the book, she is decrepit on like a walker. Like it's like yeah. a very old woman. Um, yeah, and uh, it's not 
uh, like hobo that they beat up in the beginning. Right. In the book, it's like a like a businessman. It's just like an old man. Yeah. No, it's like a young businessman. They're beating the shit out of him for being a capitalist. But it's the same idea. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that uh, you know, to bring up the point of what you just said, um, that capitalism is a huge looming aspect to both uh, American Psycho and uh, this film. So, and the reaction of that um, going kind of both ways. So that is interesting to me. Um, and interesting that Dan Enden would, <laughs> again, latch on to a film that hates capitalism so much. Um, <laughs> and, I don't know uh, that I would say that this film hates capitalism, honestly. Well, it hates the, the whatever the nuclear family kind of situation was back then, which is not too dissimilar to now. That's kind of created out of a world of uh, comfortable capitalism um, to a degree. In this point, it's become dystopian. Yeah. Um, I mean, this movie just hates authoritarianism. That too. And Control. also... And also um, Reformation. Also neglects the yeah. final chapter of the book in the interest of a much bleaker outlook. I'm into that. And I'm into, you know, just shitting on capitalism even if it's only vaguely related yeah i would probably argue that this movie is actually a little bit more critical of the soviet union than it is like american and british capitalism the way that uh strange love is i'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism space Thank you, Tim Curry, for weighing in on capitalism as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, let's go with your thoughts now per 1003 Watch, and let's get a score yeah. from you up well, front. When do you think is the last time you watched this movie? Like all the way through? Yeah, like maybe sat like down eight and or intentionally nine, watched Eight it. or nine years ago, because I, I don't think I've watched it with Rachel at any time. I didn't think it would really appeal to her. Um, so maybe 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. I would say, no, I know the last time I watched it. It was three days ago. It was 2010. Okay. So that's it's a been, long time. It's been ago. a long time. It's been a long time. Um, and it was pretty surprising to me how, like, I, much I remembered literally every single shot and beat, mm -hmm. which just showed how much I watched it when I was younger. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's. Uh, like I said to you, it's very nostalgic for me because, like, I would, at a certain point in high school, was smoking weed and sitting in a basement and watching Clockwork Orange and Evil Dead, like, once every three days. Yeah. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back. Like, every scene, especially... Here's what is interesting about Clockwork Orange, and is go I'm going to end up going into quite a bit in terms of what works and doesn't work for me in this movie, but um, the first, like half an hour 45 minutes like it yeah it's like extremely burned into my mind um because i would always be the most stoned when it would start <laughs> and the images were like retro burned onto my fucking corneas um, yeah whereas as the film unravels and goes into its kind of later throws and uh mac machinations kind of of alex coming out of rehabilitation and going back into the world that's like kind of like a blurrier junction for me where the images all match up. But yeah. what exactly happened was very unclear to the point where there were a few moments in this watch where I was like, holy shit, where something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before or took me entirely by surprise. Um, even at a small level, uh, little things like 
the writer who uh, Alex and his gang break into the house and do the whole singing in the rain, whatever. Uh, when that character comes back around later in the movie, he has a bodyguard son. I don't know what exactly the role is yeah, yeah. of the strong young man yeah, who carries know, him yeah. around. Um, I looked at him and was like, I fucking know that guy when I was looking at him. And I was like, I I know that guy really well, but I don't I don't know him from like when I used to watch the movie. I just thought it was some stuffy, strong man, British guy. Um, that is, in fact, David Prowse, who is the actor who portrayed Darth Vader, who uh, was the physical um was the trainer for uh, Superman, um, Christopher Reeves, while he was training to be Superman. And I had recently watched a movie about David Prowse um, that had talked about how he was snubbed by George Lucas and he had such a terrible relationship from Return of the Jedi on when they replaced him. They didn't tell him. They filmed the scenes with the actor under the Darth Vader yeah. mask. Uh, on a different day and didn't even tell David Prowse about it. So he lost out on his ability to show up in the movie. Anyway, I had no fucking idea it was, that was David yeah, Prowse. Yeah. I saw him and was like, holy shit. Like, wow, there's little nuggets like that and yeah. uh, little plot turns towards the end where I was like, checking my watch almost, being like, how much more yeah, is there? It's, it's funny you say this because um, I have a note about how I thought the movie was about to end and then it just goes... Holy shit! I totally forgot that there's a home stretch in this movie. Like I had forty and, minutes left when I thought it was over. Okay, I had like twenty five. Yeah. Uh, but and as it was happening, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. But I also was realizing that I wasn't fully under like as as I was when I was younger, I wasn't fully understanding the implications of what was happening because the movie hits hits such a crescendo and then just kind of plateaus for a little bit. Sure. And like, I like my recollection was that like he was gonna jump out of the window and then the movie ends, and then. Hmm. The shit happens and everything happens after that. And I was like, oh, yeah, all of this happens. Yeah. There was a lot of. But oh, I yeah. was like, I couldn't fully piece it, piece it all together. So that was very enjoyable for me. Mm -hmm. Also, tons of Easter eggs in the background of this movie that yeah. I hadn't noticed. Me neither. 2001 LP. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever noticed and that. And front and center on display, it's the 2001 LP on display. Yeah. When, uh, when Alex is purchasing records and uh, preying upon two girls... Uh, who are sucking giant giant penis lollipops um, right in front of him. And like on my 86 inch TV, it was, it's fucking like, yeah. it, it's like an 18 by 18 square <laughs> of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And I was like, wow, how spectacularly tacky. Yeah, that is. I know. It's like, I a com like, it's like a commercial. I honestly cannot believe that Stanley Kubrick did that. And I know. I think part of that is like back in the day, you would have never been able to see that. Right. Like the, qual yeah, the yeah, quality yeah. of that image was so much less. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, because I was like, there's no way I wouldn't have noticed that as a kid. Yeah, me neither. But wow. like, I didn't. I did not either. And so I was like, like, holy fuck. I was like, this has, I, I said to Kat, I was like, this has to be like a, a function of the Blu-ray. It was like digitally added in by George Lucas. <laughs> like the second Stanley Kubrick yeah. died. I also noticed. I like, oh, uh, that's a good idea. Um, Let's fix this up. In the third act, um, there's like a, a classic old movie montage of like newspaper clippings. Mm -hmm. And like all of the names are like. It's like fucking like famous actors and like Anthony Burgess's name. It turns out the governor's name is fucking Anthony Burgess, the yeah. writer of the I novel. Mean, those are things you're absolutely never going to see back in the day. Yeah. Um. So understandable. It was fun. It's cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, my L less my, tacky. My deal with uh, Clockwork Orange is that um I I was latched onto it very early. I watched it many times. Uh, as said, um 
I did not have your experience where as a young person watched it and was like, what the fuck is going on? I watched it. And from the opening shot of Alex in the Milk Bar, I was like, this movie is exactly how I'm feeling right now. Like, <laughs> I hate my family and mm -hmm. I want to cause violence. And I have a lot of misplaced male post-puberty aggression. How, how old were you? Probably 14, 15-ish. Okay. Uh, this is like when I really started digging deep on every art movie I could yeah, possibly yeah. handle. Um, and uh, I watched it and was like, wow, you know, this is incredible. Let me explore some other Kubrick joints because I'm pretty positive it was the first one I saw. And then I watched The Shining and I was like, wow, that was clearly a better movie than this. <laughs> then I watched 2001 and I was like, clearly this is the best movie ever made. I had seen both 2001 and The Shining before I saw this. Um, and then I kind of came back around to liking Clockwork Orange quite a bit, but not on the same level as some of the other movies in his stable. Um, and for me, it's always been a movie of um, great forecasts of our future in a very dystopian way, but also suffering from the anachronisms of its time in ways that even movies made before it didn't seem to suffer from. Like, 2001 still looks good. It still makes sense. All the technology in it is still pretty well forecasted into what we're using right now. It's, in fact, one of the more accurate movies ever made about what would the future even remotely look, sound, or feel like. This movie is not. This movie, it, it does live in a fantasy world, which I know is on purpose, and a stylized one at that, sure. But for me, the first... And this, unfortunately, is the way that I still feel to this day. The first... I think Alex's rampage only takes up like 30 minutes or so of the beginning of the movie. Um, it's where yeah. almost every iconic image save for him getting the procedure comes from is those first 30 minutes. Now to an outsider who's never seen Clockwork Orange, you would probably assume if you consume enough media and see enough clips of it that the movie is Malcolm McDowell and his droogs going around fucking shit up for like an hour plus and then like something happens and even uh, in a Mandela effect kind of way my brain almost remembered it like that really um, so I, honestly that, I had remembered it being even shorter that yeah time. I mean it's I, I was surprised that it went as long as it did on this I'll, watch I'll put it this way I, I cannot argue that the best parts of this movie are first I will say that the better ideas are of course watching his reformation, watching the cycle of the hell that he had made for himself when he gets out of mm -hmm. rehab. Um, that is a very clear parable to rehabilitation, whether it's prison, drug, and yeah. otherwise. And um, his whole process in the prison, I love. I love that chunk of the Love movie. it too. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, and actually I think the movie becomes hilarious yeah. from the prison scene on and yeah. introduces a bunch of really warm and funny side characters and really becomes less mean-spirited and more of a satirical farce. Yeah. And well the book the book is funny. Like yeah. it's funny as shit. Like well, they thought they were making a comedy when they made the movie. Yeah, right. Like, uh, um Malcolm McDowell commented that he thought it was a black comedy from the get-go yeah. and he was shocked when people were shocked about yeah. Clockwork Orange. He was like, people are not getting it. Um, as I, it I stands, mean, just the whole notion of a dude 
you're presented where you think uh, you're watching a rehabilitated prisoner who's turned to Jesus, who's sitting around re reading the Bible all day, and it turns out just because he's fantasizing about all the war scenes. He just loves the violence. Yeah, and the fucking... Of the Bible. Yeah, it's so funny. That's just like that... But it's not... It's a hilarious concept. It's not... And it's not even a comedy in the way that Doctor Strangelove is. You know no, what I mean? No. Doctor Strangelove. Now, that is a That's satire. comedic satire. Yeah. Well, this is satire as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's amazing to watch a director use satire in two completely different ways. Mm -hmm. For me, watching Clockwork Orange is not a comedy. I do laugh a lot. No. But when I'm done, I'm not like, hilarious, delightful romp. It's more like, that was fucking dark and awesome. And the comments being made were spot on, will always be spot on. Um, the commentary is biting, it's genius. Yeah. And it there's a lot of similarities in like some of the ancillary characters too. Like the, yeah. um, his, uh, his, I don't know what that yes. is. Yeah, yeah, his, ref <laughs> his reformer. out for a while, yeah. Alex, yes. Yeah, big Peter Sellers vibes. Like, yeah. this yeah. movie is like, I see this movie really as like, it's just like the evil tw side of the coin to, to Doctor Strangelove. Um, and yeah, for those reasons, I do love uh, this movie, but it is it, it it is imperfect in comparison to what I would argue are Kubrick's perfect works. So for those reasons, um, I would give this movie a nine out of ten. Still, um, the one point is a mix of anachronisms that that aren't on purpose, like the score the some of the visuals um it's just very of its time whereas the shining and things like that like yeah i mean jack nicholson looks like he's from the 60s 70s in dress but like t there's a timeless aspect to the visuals that i think clockwork orange in its later throws kind of turns into more procedural stuff visually and the, the idea movie's also supposed to take place in the 70s it's 1980. Okay. It's an alternate 1980. Okay. Right. Um, I think that tracks. That tracks, but like, again, like uh, in 2001, it, it wasn't like someone put a cassette into a cassette player. It, it was like uh, they had video screens they were talking to each other on. This no, is a that's movie that's not what the before. source material is. It's not what the source material is, but visually, yeah. it's clearly of its And not only, but then. The book is it, not, when you read the book, you're not picturing um the 70s 80s aesthetic like um uh the for example the milk bar it's like very 60s go-go dancers everyone that's not described in the book at all right you don't get those visuals no. that is what kubrick and his production designers put together and it's beautiful and it's of its time and the music for example with the synthesizers that those are not like futuristic sounding synthesizers right. that's clearly 60s 70s era goofy synth music i just there you can't i don't think you can deny that there is a and whether it's charming or not is not the point whether it's gorgeous or not is not the point because even the transfer of this film that i had just watched was unbelievably beautiful to look at um it's still dated there are things in it the haircuts the styles that you can tell there there are movies about the future dan where they are trying to um emulate the future but can't escape uh, the rote imagery of yeah, their yeah. current year. Like if you watch Star Trek, the motion picture, the first one from the seventies that they really tried to push forward with the way that everything looked, but they're still wearing bell bottoms. Like they didn't right, know that right, pants that were going yeah. to be helmed, hemmed yeah. differently. It's shit like that. That's inescapable. Like but, but, Alex's purple Joker get up. 
like that he wears yeah. to the LP store. Yeah. That I guess is meant to look futuristic, but that is clearly something from the sixties. I, I, th- I saw that as like, that was him try. That's his like trying to be retro. His vibe. formal wear. Well, you could be right. It could be a society in which they are obsessed with the sixties and seventies. And that is what their style reflects back on. But that's well, cause not that's the sad. scene immediately following his, like, it was like, he comes home cause he's dressed there's a chunk in between. He's in his white getup in the beginning. Then there's a scene where he's dressed normally. Then he's back to the white getup. Then he comes home and he's listening to Beethoven and having his orgasmic rapture. Right. And then the next scene is cut to him dressed in frilly old-timey English clothing. I'm like, this is him going record shopping, being his pretentious self. Yes. Well, 100%. Um, but it still looks like but shit. As far as the cassette, <laughs> as far as the cassette goes, yeah. mm-hmm. it was very futuristic because it was a teeny tiny cassette. It was a teeny tiny <laughs> cassette, which already existed at the time for voice recorders. And that was a real unit that Stanley Kubrick went and bought where you could insert a mini disc tape into an LP player. Yeah. Um, and what I will say is that which, his... Which, again, this would be like if there was a laser disc into Stanley Kubrick. Right. If in Eyes Wide Shut... Uh, Nicole Kidman's like, <laughs> let's put on a porno and grabbed a laser disc. Yeah. You'd be like, fucking that, LOL. Yeah. Um, that's what some of this movie. What feels else? Like. What I will give this though is his sound system, his like ultra, ultra, super duper hi-fi sound system. That's what they look like today. Yeah. That was pretty wild. Um, I get, I get the music direct catalog every year, and that's what the fucking top of the line shit looks like currently. I'll put it this way: the things I love about Clockwork Orange, the movie, are uh, Alex's vibe, the style of the world being built. Um, the clothes, the images of the first hour are also striking. And from the prison sentence on, it is still a fantastic movie that still, it checks every box you could ever imagine. It tickled me pink. But if you started the movie from the moment Alex DeLarge is put in jail, you wouldn't know that it was in the future. You wouldn't get the world building sense of this dystopian, like for example, the scene where the rival gang is raping a girl in this like abandoned warehouse. Busy boy. That is a scene like many in the beginning that set up this incredibly dark and bleak world. Yeah. That just does not exist for the rest of the movie. And it's fine. I'm cool with that. The prison looks like any prison. The even the procedure itself is just him watching a movie with drops being put in his eyes. Granted, the idea behind that is somewhat futuristic. The attempts to stylize the film kind of end on an outward point of view at at that point and then become more the only style left in the movie becomes inside Alex's mind, which is interesting because the rest of the world becomes bland. Then all of the thoughts in Alex's mind become stylized because that was the world he lived in before he was jailed. Um, All of that's an interesting, you know, flex to go into. But at, at the end of the day, it's just like between the world building ending at the jail scene and between um, the, as you said, I checked and there's 25 minutes left. Let's be honest. The pacing of jail on is a little bit weird. There is a little bit. Now I understand that like what Kubrick is trying to do is bring everything that happened in that first hour back around on Alex and throwing it in his face. It happens to every single person he harmed. The homeless man comes back. Yep. The writer comes back. Um, the health woman doesn't come back, but he is punished from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything uh, he reaps uh, is sowed, or whatever the phrase is. And um, really, like that's all interesting from a narrative point of view, and is very funny and poignant. I mean, when he just stumbles into the house of the yeah. guy whose wife he it, it switches. It turns into like a, a Kafka-esque situation for the whole. Last it stretch. turns into like a Christmas story. It's like the trial. 
It's like he's brought around and shown all of his crimes yeah. by the ghost of Christmas yeah, past, right. which is cool. But but uh, but dude, I I just there there's a world where I wish that that first section of the movie was given. 15 to 20 more minutes because I mean the movie was four hours originally and so much of the four hours was shit that they cut out from his gang life yeah and look I understand back then you couldn't really put too much into a movie um, like this and obviously from the drama that this movie caused it's clear that people weren't fully ready for even this version of the movie yeah. but it's kind of yeah I mean for that reason there is it's it's just not perfect for me I can't say it's Perfect. But well, well, you gave it a nine, whereas in the Barry Lyndon episode, I think you gave it a seven point nine. That's really low, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, I think at that point, <laughs> I'd seen the movie last on like DVD. Yeah. <laughs> think how off put you'd be if they had kept the original ending from the book. Right. Yeah, that would be pretty upsetting. Do you want to explain it? So, if anyone who yeah. hasn't, so uh, in the in the original before in the original in the original ending of the book, which. Uh, Kubrick, to his credit, did not read until he was done with the screenplay for this film, um, because... You're the, saying Kubrick didn't read the book before he was done the screenplay? How's that physically possible? It's the exact copy of the book with so, all the same terms and language. So, the original final chapter of the book... Oh, um, you mean the chapter? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant the whole book. No, so. no. The original Delete final this. chapter of the book... Cut. Okay. <laughs> the original final chapter of the book was omitted from the American published version of the book mm, mm -hmm. because the publisher felt that American audiences would not buy the arc at the end, which basically the whole home stretch is exactly the same, except there's a whole scene in which um, he he runs into uh, the one of his earlier droogs who's like, who didn't become a cop and isn't a piece of shit. And mm -hmm. it's just kind of in the background the whole time. Sure. Um, he just sees him at a bar, like with his wife and kids having a normal family. And the entire last chapter is him realizing that, like, even though he still has, like, these sociopathic thoughts, he thinks that, like, he, um, he, he starts going around, he joins a, he joins, like, a new gang, um, this is all omitted, he joins an entirely new gang, starts doing all sorts of ultraviolence again, um, but then realizes he's not getting any pleasure from it, and comes to the conclusion that, like, at, like, now he's an adult. Um, he's of age, like he became 21. Uh -huh. so, so like now he wants to, uh, or no, now he's 18 in the book. Cause in the book he's 16 for all of it. Um, right. now he's turned 18. It's time for him to, you know, be a functional member of society and like try to find a wife and family. And that like, he actually discovers that he as a whole is rehabilitated. Even if they undid the conditioning that like he at least wants to abandon his, it's a big redemption arc that comes very, very, very abruptly and all happens in the course of one chapter. It's very, very hokey. Hmm. Um, they didn't include this in the American version. Kubrick had only read the American version. He wasn't informed there was an alternate ending until he was pretty much done with the screenplay. He read it and he was like, fuck that. Um, Anthony Burgess has spent the rest of his life thinking, like, with a contentious relationship. Being butthurt about it? Being a little butthurt about it, being butthurt about how overly dark the movie was. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, my understanding is that, okay, pal. Yeah, my under my understanding is that uh, he and Kubrick actually had a, a very they had a friendship um, for a lot of years, and then they had um, a falling out because when the film got all of its controversy at the time, especially in England, mm -hmm. uh, Kubrick was just like. Uh, his whole response was like, you should talk to the guy who wrote it. 
Right. And just fucking was like, I'm not answering any questions. I literally adapted it fucking note for note. Talk to that guy. That's a cheap move. Yeah, and that guy just got fucking wrecked. And he he's over there being like, well, they left out the end where there's like a redemption arc. My, like, whatever. Well, we're, we're going to get into, uh, when we go into the trivia section of today's episode, um, man, a lot of people fell out of love with Kubrick uh, throughout yeah. his career. But can um, you imagine if this movie... Man made a lot of enemies. Yeah. Can you <laughs> imagine lot. if this movie ended with Alex being all like fucking like happy-go-lucky like ah maybe i should be a good guy yeah no pass yeah this is a that's a ballsy ass move to end this movie the way it does <laughs> um all right uh shall we have a little fun and then go back to talking about the movie now do you want my score yeah 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 kind of felt that one coming, yeah. coming down the pike pretty far um uh yeah for me um visuals and structure and anachronisms cost one point i love love the score to this movie. I love it. Have it on vinyl. Listen to it often. Mm, I have a love hate with it. Some of it, I think sounds like absolute shit. I think, I mean, it does sound like shit, but in the context of this movie where you have a guy who's so obsessed with lovely, lovely Ludwig van uh-huh. and you're just hearing these fucking bastardized, modernized yeah, sy- synthesized well, versions of me. it. <laughs> so bothers me about it. It's <laughs> so fucking funny to me. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. Especially definitely. knowing like, you know, I've talked to my grandparents about, or I've talked to my grandmother uh, about this movie throughout my life, because um, mm-hmm. she was, you know, she's an artsy New York Jew, mm-hmm. liberal she Jew. She used to go around raping people. She used to spend a lot of time at the cinema, at the cine. She'd go around doing Amazon position on men throughout the countryside. Please don't listen to this, Grandma. <laughs> I'm sure you don't know what a podcast is, but uh, she, uh, she, she was like, she was like, you know, at the time, like. She's a big classical music person, mm-hmm. and she's like, there's an inherent, on top of all the visual outrage of just, like, the content of the movie, the 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 classical music, this movie is extremely antagonistic to the classical music community. Yeah. Like, people hated that they did this, yeah. these renditions, and, like, you know, it's a movie that in its core, like, really romanticizes classical music mm-hmm. while simultaneously an- antagonizing shit. the culture of it entirely yeah, yeah. that's and that's Kubrick, baby that uh that that appeals to me all right a uh, quick word from our sponsors and then we're gonna play a game seagram's and get back to it seagram's escapes sip happiness <laughs> i'm not allowed to sip happiness anymore how did you how did you know that that was going to be a seagram's ad did you read our our group email our podcast email and you saw that we were accepted as an official sponsor wouldn't that be an amazing surprise if we were actually a sponsor of seagram's escape it would be like fucking dystopian as fuck given i'm not allowed to drink carbonation or alcohol anymore (laughs) (laughs) i think we'll get into that in the next episode Was Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld Jewish? She was, wasn't she? I don't know. Technically. I assume they're all Jewish. Well, not Kramer. He's got classic goy energy. Uh, I don't know, man. He says the the N-word a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Random button alert. Oh, no, I have the music thing open. That's not a good idea. That's just going to... That would have ended up with this. That was me saying. <clears throat> All right. You ready for the game for today? Dan said last season, not enough games anymore. Yeah. Quote, Dan Enden, not enough games anymore. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, we're gonna do games, and if you don't, if eventually you're like, this sucks again, <laughs> <laughs> now this sucks. Um, <laughs> uh, That's like my whole vibe, though. I'm like big Bart Simpson vibes <laughs> at this point in my life. Gotcha. All right. Um, <laughs> you're playing a game. I just hit you with a slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Today's game is. Clockwork Orange or Don't Look Up. These are going to be quotes from um, movie reviewers reviewing either the film Don't Look Up, which is Dan Anden's favorite film of last year. He, he hates it. Um, he's shaking his head already in total disgust. I'm, I'm just like... Every time I think about that movie, I get a little bit upset. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, I really, really should have found a way to latch that into the next episode. <laughs> Dan is going to let us know uh, if the following uh, quotes are from reviewers talking about uh, Clockwork Orange or uh, a movie that he absolutely hates, don't look up. Real quick, uh, for the next episode, remind me... Uh, to, deter to determine whether I like that movie more or less than Don't Look Up. <laughs> Come on, dude. <clears throat> an ideological mess. A paranoid right-wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. Clockwork Orange. Yes, that is Roger Ebert. Yep. Trashing a Clockwork Orange. I've read that before. <clears throat> this it is going to be tough because I've <laughs> done a lot of Clockwork Oranging in my life. <laughs> It's no Dr. Strangelove in achieving lasting political satire, but it does mirror the times in which it was produced. Don't look up. Don't look up. That is correct. In that was the, a classic Dan Lyons, Mr. X. I was trying. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> in the end, whichever way you feel How about... How they mention Strangelove in the same fucking breath as that I know. Movie. I'm trying to find the most like sacrilegious <laughs> fucking... <laughs> reviews to bother you with um, in the end whichever way you feel about the movie's manipulations it's difficult to watch without being strongly affected don't look up correct I was strongly affected by don't look I up know, I know you were <laughs> someone, re dude, uh, someone was recently trying to argue with me that don't look up was good because uh, Meryl Streep's character was brilliant Brilliant. I actually think Jonah Hill's character is the only yeah, brilliant one. Only redeeming that. part of that entire so movie. So funny. He was playing uh, Hunter Biden slash yeah. Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. Same person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so all of the film's provocation and jaded politics are flavored with histrionic cynicism and disillusion. Clockwork Orange. That's correct. Is this too easy? Um, yes. I, yes. I mean, I'm batting a thousand. That usually doesn't <laughs> you are, happen. You are. This is, doesn't usually happen. The film's negativity indicts the director and insults its audience. Clockwork Orange. Don't look up. Ooh. Ding fucking ding. Random button alert. Nice. The film's negativity? Yep. Okay. Oh, that's a bit. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, that movie was the most fucking romanticized shitlib fantasy ever. <laughs> Should have loved it then. An exercise in... <laughs> An exercise in creative self-indulgence in which a talented artist sells his talent short by engaging in a petty, perverse project. Yeah, that's Clockwork Orange, but yeah. it should be Don't Look Up. <laughs> that's kind of the point of this game. Um, <laughs> a very bad film. Snide, barely competent, and overdrawn. Gonna go with the same answer as last time. What's that? Clockwork but, Orange, but, but it, it should have be. been. Uh, yeah. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, only one wrong so far. Yeah. I hate that. <laughs> What's interesting... <Feels> good. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about the film is that it has tapped... That it has tapped like a tree root into the great subterranean sea of sadness around our world. That's That's got to be like the Huffington Post review of Don't Look Up. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> On both fronts. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> but it is Don't Look Up. Brilliant but disappointing. In mo uh, its moments of power offset by an overwrought stridency and its message being overbalanced by the medium. Don't look up. Clockwork Orange. Mm. <laughs> Just try to do better, please. Don't look up. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my favorite Rotten Tomatoes snippet maybe I've ever read is just <laughs> try to do better, please. Is that like refer like asking like the viewer or the movie? The movie. I like that review. I know you do. I'll God. send you the link. That movie fucking sucks, dude. We know, we know, we know you think that. <laughs> Ice cold, indecent, and Cl way Clockwork too orange. obvious to be in <laughs> any way deep. Clockwork orange. That is correct. There's nothing ice cold about Don't Look Up. <laughs> the result is demonstrative and with little appeal. Don't Look Up. That's correct. It demands thought, compels attention, and refuses to be dismissed. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, that's Don't Look Up. It's Clockwork Orange. Oh. And that good. is the end of the game, my friend. Right. You did pretty good. You got three wrong out of uh, 13. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. A fair amount of this has me, like, noticed the patterns in which you put the back and forth in these games. Oh, well, don't worry, because I, I'm going to change that up uh, immediately. <laughs> I only can do the same trick so many times to you. Um, make the same joke over and over again. Um, all right. Uh, let's uh, go micro and talk about some of the things that we thought as we watched Clockwork Orange this time around. Okay. How about did, that? Did we do Don't Look Up for the podcast? Or, no. Or did we, I just watch that for fun? You watched it for fun and like we had other movies scheduled at the time and I think like or you watched it after I had watched it and I already talked about it on the pod or something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe I did my Jeopardy segment on it. Anyway, hilarious and delightful satire. Go check it out. God, the worst. <laughs> uh, moving on. That movie made me retroactively hate all of his other movies. Um, <laughs> that's okay because most of his movies are fucking terrible. Dan. Yeah, um, you know what? I also am gonna go. I'm gonna go on record saying the Big Short is also terrible, and everyone yeah. fucking needs to stop jerking that movie off too. Let's put a pin in that because next week's episode, My Son Hunter, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Big Short because okay. clearly the two movies were made to be exactly the same. Okay, made to be. Okay, <laughs> and are of the same quality. Um, uh, <clears throat> Clockwork Orange, Dan. Yeah. Uh, do you have notes? Do you have things that you noticed this time around? I have plenty of things that I thought and saw, and then thought about what I saw. Um, you can you can drive this conversation. That's I fair. Uh, my, like I have notes. They've been touched upon, but like they're just overwhelmingly me fluffing the movie. I definitely have some some takes that I know are gonna upset you, but that's fine. That's fair. I'm sure it'll come up. I have some that are gonna uh, upset you. Okay. Uh, such as, this is another one of Kubrick's royalty-free masterpieces. Because <laughs> the music is all... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> fucking free and terrible. Um, uh, opening shot. You don't uh, think he had to pay for singing in the rain? He did. Yeah. You know how that all I'm, happened? I'm kidding. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
uh, that was an on the day thing and Kubrick liked it so much he reached out and paid 10 grand for yeah. the song after the fact yeah. um, and Nihu um, opening shot is still uh, maybe the greatest shot that Stanley Kubrick has ever laid down shot of Alex stare Kubrick stare unbelievable um, uh, the balls on somebody in that day and age to uh, show so much um, anger in, in an opening shot and so much like there's just so much being conveyed. So much world building in what amounts to just a tracking shot backing up down a fucking hallway. Yeah. And it, you couldn't do it again. These are things that insane, like insane that like that opening shot Kubrick did that you can't do again. For example, uh, this, the, you know, people have done the stare a million times over and they it never hits. Right. It's <laughs> like you can't do it like Jack Nicholson or Malcolm McDowell. That's no. it. Those are the two. And it's all over. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, one thing that people try to reproduce all the time with Kubrick is the overhead tracking shot of a car through the woods from yep. The Shining. Yeah, yeah. Um, over a million movies have fucking done that. I can't. I, I cannot that, dude. stand that. And when they tried to do it in uh, Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, Digitally. And yeah. it looked all. Yeah. Eh, it that wasn't was rough. That was one of the worst. Uh, pretty much anything directly from The Shining and Doctor Sleep made me cringe a little bit. But yeah. uh, uh, opening stare is just 10 out of 10,000 million. I mean, you, you yeah. cannot craft a better yeah, opening shot. Yeah, one of the easily top most, one of the most top iconic shots of all time. Um, it then kicks off the best section of this movie, which is uh, ultraviolence, just one version after another. Uh, the beating of the homeless man, super extremely reminiscent of American Psycho. Many of the opening kills of the novel and movie American Psycho are Patrick Bateman um, attacking homeless people. Shout um, out Brad Easton Ellis, by the way. We haven't done any... No, and we we should. I mean, we he's, should do like he, he's my rules of top, attraction. Top three favorite directors. Uh, I mean, uh, authors of all yeah. time, and and rules of attraction is top ten movies. Rules of, of all attraction time. or uh, less than zero. Great, all great, incredible. Less than zero, fantastic book. Also, yeah, better book than movie. Yeah, but, um, for sure. Uh, fuck, man, Brad Easton Ellis is. Have you listen to his podcast? No, I, I I listened to a little bit of it. You suggested this to me before, but I I dropped off with it. Big Glamorama fan. Always wish Roger Avery made that movie. Fantastic. I uh, bought it for Rachel. It's on the shelf over there. She's been reading really good books recently that I've been wrecking to her. So she's nice. going to read that. That is, if you haven't read it, listeners, probably one of the most interesting books of all time. Very cool. Yeah. I'd say Brad Easton Ellis, top 10 gay man of all time. <laughs> for fuck's sakes, dude. <laughs> Save that fire for the Biden episode when I got the full fucking board in front of me, you know what I mean? <laughs> Change it up a little bit this season, Dan. Why should someone be gay? <laughs> Jesus. Or, doesn't that make you gay? <laughs> like, <laughs> Dan, these are the moments where, like, I don't know who I do these things for because yeah, Dan is upset. Me. It's yeah, not it's, me. No, it's I, not him. I, I'm often thinking, I often think about just, like, <laughs> The like you discovering that video, like <laughs> how much I wish that didn't happen. <laughs> um, the classics never leave. Um, so um, yeah, uh, we're talking about the homeless man. Kick I off into the super violence of the movie, uh, which you know 
uh, is all super duper iconic for all different reasons. Um, the outfits are fucking amazing. Uh, the jock straps worn on the outside of the pants were also another thing. Malcolm McDowell's idea. Yeah, that Malcolm McDowell was a cricket player and was wearing it to set and yeah. they were like playing around with it and decided to put it on the outside of the pants. Yeah. Classic. Um, I think it was the inspiration for Quail Man later. Um, R slash Doug humor. Because <laughs> he wore his underpants. So. Yeah. No, we're, <clears> moving on. I'm familiar um, with Doug. <laughs> Uh, uh, dude, wait. What's the uh, the one Bo Burnham, uh, the Bo Burnham line in one of his uh, videos from when he's a kid? He's like, I'm like Doug's friend Skeeter whenever I meet her, because uh, uh, fucking don't fuck this up. Dad. I don't remember, but the basic gist is because I fucking busted her face so hard they call her Patty Mayonnaise. <laughs> I'm about to bust. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> then we move on to um, you know <laughs> that, that, that's Emmy winner Bo Burnham. <laughs> He's embarrassed for those videos. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, lots of interesting things happen in, in and around the violence uh, scenes. Uh, a lot of the old in out in out. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex's gang I already mentioned kind of a little bit. Uh, intervening on raping the girl like what a wonderful dystopian nightmare that scene is oh um, yeah and i once read a review about someone who really hated a clockwork orange and they said that for example like there's a scene um you're, you're looking at a stage of like a dilapidated theater uh four other guys in a rival gang are attacking the same girl they're ripping big, her big clothes warriors off. vibes it does look like warriors and we'll talk about a lot of things that uh, you know, Clockwork Orange has clearly inspired. I mean, there are so many movies that are aped. I mean, I don't even think Fight Club would exist without Clockwork Orange yeah, uh, yeah. in the form that it is in. Um, I don't know if Caligula would have happened without Clockwork Orange. Like, this is literally a scene in this movie that is him in, like, Roman garb, yeah. like, slaying people. I think Caligula would have existed, but not with Malcolm yeah, McDowell. Yeah, not with Malcolm McDowell. Um, they were like, what if the one cutaway from Clockwork Orange but a whole movie? Yeah, they were They were like, what if we made the other two hours that got cut? <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Um, Caligula's fucking insane. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so... What? what? Yeah, I, I've suggested that we do it a few times, but you were kind of, like, lukewarm about it. Um, I mean, like, there's, like, what can be said? Like, it's... I don't know what can be said. It's a porno, basically, but I want to see it. Yeah, so let's watch. That's fine. Put it to, add it to the list. I don't want to get too big of a boner, though. Uh, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's produced by Penthouse, right? Or Hustler. I don't know. I, I, it was produced by a porn magazine. I saw it because I spent days intermittently downloading it on Kazaa via dial-up as a kid. <laughs> Sallow dot... Like yeah. kaza.xxcxz. Well, I saw Clockwork Orange and then I discovered Caligula and I was like, I'm not going to be able to swing finding a way to get that. I'm never going to stop masturbating to Malcolm McDowell. So, <laughs> I used to constantly download movies, but it would take about a week because every time my parents needed to use the phone, I needed to turn the internet off. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell makes me come. From one Dan to another. Um... <laughs> I, I forgot about that already. That's so fucking crazy. <laughs> um, so, um, my uh, jaw was on the floor when that started. I know. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
this reviewer had said that um, Stanley Kubrick is this massive, massive pervert because he um, chose to shoot that scene of the men on the stage raping the woman, and they didn't even show Alex and his gang coming into the building and setting up in their positions. Like, that means that Stanley Kubrick only wants to focus on the sex and the yeah. rape. Like, this dumb bitch, because it was a woman, so I'm not, you know, that's yeah, yeah. not offensive. Yeah, no, she's a dumb bitch. Um, misses the entire fucking style of that shot, yeah. dude. Like, like you're watching all of this shit, and you don't even really know what's going on at this point. You just see, like, a different gang doing different rape, and, yeah. and it's horrible to watch. And when they cut over to Alex's gang and they're all like located symmetrically in front of like the shadows yeah. of this fucking building Amazing. and they're all in various poses and Alex is like his legs are crossed and he's like leaning on a cane maybe mm -hmm. in a way that suggests that he's been there like watching from the shadows and like dude it's just such a that cut shot is just genius and it's little stuff like that that just makes it you know so obvious that Kubrick is God yeah I mean <laughs> it's just a literal God of filmmaking I mean, it's insane there's a lot of it with um, over the last several years. Like, I mean, after we did Barry Lyndon, I definitely went on a Cooper kick, mm -hmm. but I didn't watch Clockwork Orange. I'd kind of been holding off on that one uh, because I'd Same. seen it so many times. And Same. I, uh, I really, in my head, had misranked where this movie fell along in the process of like Kubrick becoming Kubrick mm -hmm. visually. And there is shit in this movie that I'm just like, I don't fucking know how you come up with shots yeah. like this in that year. This movie, like, the shots are so ahead of their time in a way that suggests that they caused all other movies to look like it. The um, That's how powerful the energy kinetically is of the way that Kubrick at least shoots the first hour. Yeah. Because the second hour, it's not... No, it's less. It's much less. But in that first hour, you see him pulling off such amazing edits um, and such incredible camera angles. And it's just it, fucked. Yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> it's incredible. And some of... Like, I'd say my two favorite shots in the movie, outside of the intro, are, like, very just, like, innocuous, innocuous just scene-setting uh, shots, like... I'd say one of my absolute favorites is uh, when they first show the writer's house um, pre-assault. Just the establishing shot of shows just a man writing at a desk. Looks very normal. And just a slow pan to the right. And you really start seeing like the weird fucked up architecture and furniture of the time. The woman gets out of the pod. You're seeing two different depth hallways at two different heights. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, that is like... That is like if I was trying to describe what is a Stanley Kubrick shot, like it is that. Sure. Um, and I would say my other favorite shot is in in the scene you were just talking about in the warehouse or whatever it is with Billy Boy's gang. Mm -hmm. um, after they do the cut to reveal Alex's gang, they do almost a point of view shot from Alex. But it's more like in the corner of the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And just they show the entire warehouse from very, very far removed in a corner. And it is insane looking. Just like the placement of everything. Yeah. It's just like a giant diamond. Um, and then you see them walk into the frame. And I was just like, man, this movie looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> it does. The night shots in this movie, like when the gang is out at night. 
are just gorgeous. Yeah. Like, you, how in that day and age are they shooting night to look that good? And yeah. and then I go and see Jordan Peele's Nope, and that movie is like eighty percent day for night, like with CGI, like dark clouds. It's just like, dude, <laughs> y'all have lost your way. Yeah. <laughs> Digital ruined everything. <laughs> um. So other things that I uh, noticed that I liked and really didn't remember uh, in his narration, Alex describing a break in in entering rape situation calls it the old surprise visit. Yeah. Which I thought was fucking great. Yeah. That tickled me. Um, What is incredible about this movie, uh, other than its visuals and it's the way that it's shot, you know, forecasting the cool stylistic, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie, like, you know, 2000s filmmakers things like that like so many people are obviously so inspired by all these things but also like um i oh, yeah, big crank too high voltage vibes did you get cranked no i'm kidding should i add that to the list of um influences no um, but the I... dialogue the dialogue and the narration mm-hmm. and the way that the slang is used mm-hmm. is so hip still to listen to it sounds so good on the ear mm-hmm. and there are plenty of movies and the cadence of it is so pleasing to listen to for example it's like, like musical the way he talks i absolutely hate ryan johnson but he made a movie called brick which is fantastic that was and his first movie right yeah that's the uh, joseph gordon levitt noir yeah that's a great movie also starring lost's emily de raven aka my baby claire really yeah she is the female um, uh that that joseph gordon let it Levitt is investigating the death of. First movie I ever got on Netflix through the mail. Rick. Sweet. Yeah. Um, and they speak in a completely foreign uh, slang language that also works absolutely perfectly. Um, I think it's something that more movies should try. And I think it's like when you see movies like Demolition Man and it's like the Three Seashells and Taco Bell, Franchise Wars, things like that. That shit is funny, but it's also like fun, fun ideas about mm-hmm. the future that are stylish and cool and like Love uh, Demolition Man. The way that people use um, futuristic terms in futuristic movies are it really does something to the vibe, which I find to be really, really cool. Um, yeah. Whether it's like, uh, you know, like Cyberpunk 77 or Blade Runner, anything like that. There are terms where you hear them. And as long as they're used in context, people get them. Yeah. You can do your fucking homework. I think a person could watch this movie and, be, um, you know, not be familiar with all these bizarre terms and still be like yeah. oh i know what he's talking as, about as an adult person this time this is the first time in my life that i watch it where i understood 100 percent of the narration one thing that i did understand maybe for the first time maybe not is that there is the scene that we've talked about where alex goes home and is listening to his records and i want to say and this isn't what i used to think but i'm pretty sure he's masturbating is he not no he's not he's no. dreaming no he's because he's, he said um I, I slushied. That's what he kept yeah, saying no, about it. He he comes from the music, but he's not masturbating. Well, regardless, what I'm saying yeah. is he is being masturbated. He's being sexually yeah, he's, to he's climax. Ar- yeah, yeah, he's aroused by He's him. reaching climax. Yeah. Now, I would like to think, and he's talking about slushying, and he's seeing all these m- mental images of violence and stuff. I would like to think that he is masturbating, but they couldn't. You know, this is before you could even show a hand moving like in a movie to suggest that someone was masturbating because the look on his face that they cut to yeah. is so in, in the sexualized. in the book in the book it's clear as day that he's just like he comes from music he's just coming on music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that Alex tells his parents that uh, at night he's out helping people like fucking Batman. I know, I know. Which is like so reminiscent of, and I'm sure part of the reason of we like this movie is that, you know, as a youth, 
before your parents know that you're a piece of shit, when you're still in the gray area where you can kind of make up things and you, yeah. haven't, you haven't been totally nailed to the wall yet. Yeah. That's the vibe of, Oh yeah. She's like, Oh, Alex is out helping people at night. It's yeah, like, just the yeah. dichotomy. It's like, it's like Alex raping a woman smash cut to like him in bed, his mom knocking on the door. Like you got to go to school, son. And he's like, <laughs> gotta get fit. Mm-hmm. Got a pain in the old Gulliver. Be right as rain by after lunch. <laughs> um, yeah, his his uh, vibe with his parents, I mean, is A, he's overly nice because he's created an, an atmosphere where he's in control of his parents, where yeah. his parents are subservient to him. And whereas he uses kind of terror and brutality on everyone else around him in the world, with his parents, he's like overly nice to like the one friend you have that's too chummy and like puts his arm around you and you're like, Ugh, God. Totally, like, totally. Um, it's, it's this vibe of, that he has really across different relationships he has in the movie where he, his power dynamic is he always needs to be on top. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had forgotten about that scene, honestly. Yeah. And that was the moment where, cause like, you know, I was watching it and I had my initial first, I'd say 15 minutes where I was like, yep. Remember all this. Definitely see why I thought this was a great movie. But then that scene happened. I was like watching that interaction. I was like, Oh, this is, an elite character like this is elite character development yeah like that was the first moment on this rewatch that i i snapped back into full engagement and was like oh yeah this is an incredible 10 out of 10 character of all time sure and uh really this brings me into and this will kind of be the 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 curb end of the discussion in terms of the movie itself for me uh, upon rewatch are there are two branches of new observations that i made that i had never felt before watching this movie um one of them is about all the authority figures in his life from the prison scene onward um being extremely like pedophilic yeah like being extremely creepy sexually physically yeah um and 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 awesome to have that subtext that long ago like really uh which apparently wasn't in the book at all apparently the people not who, that i remember it's not but like especially having the priest have that vibe like oh yeah like, everyone did the priest very te- prescient they they absolutely go out of their way to make the pre the priest teeth all rotten um yeah as if the words that he's been spitting out are literally like rotting him from the fucking face down and yeah. it's just like all of the authority figures and i never it never hit struck me when young when i was younger but they all are preying upon alex sexually oh yeah um and it's it's everywhere. First of all, like his his caseworker, yes, his yeah. social worker, yes, um, goes to visit him, and it, the scene starts with him on his bed, and he pulls Alex into bed with him. He grabs Alex's penis. I've done nothing wrong at all, brother sir. Um, <laughs> Alex's vibe is like any person who again hasn't been accused of anything or convicted of anything yet, and is constantly lying. He's just like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, it, uh, there was a little bit of nastiness last night. Yeah. 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 <laughs> quite a bit of nastiness indeed. Yeah. Yeah. That um, is so the good. greatest character yeah, of all time. that is the greatest. Um, dude, how do you fucking follow up Dr. Strangelove? Get a dude like that to come in and like out Peter Sellers, Peter Sellers. His, I mean that his, guy was amazing. His comb over is breathtaking. Yeah, he's he's a he's a wonder to behold. He has a big lazy eye. Yeah, you're a murderer, Alex. Um, and uh, the other character, the the prison uh, <laughs> guy who likes. To, how would you even describe this guy? 
he's like super military formal and always like clapping his shoes around <laughs> and like being so aggressively over the top about yeah and and eventually literally, like, you shut your mouth you scum <laughs> Alex gets like asked a question he answers <laughs> that is the best part uh. best part of the movie is when Alex is um, discussing with a, per, uh, a person from the science clinic for the first time about whether to get this experimental uh, procedure essentially to get him out of jail and as everything that he says is relayed to Alex, the the his like ward from the prison is just screaming like how to answer and screaming that he's an idiot to his face as he's answering. He's uh, he's speaking to the governor in that moment. Oh, that's the governor. Yeah, that's yeah, so funny. Um, those are like literal literal. Um, yeah, that's like right out of Doctor Strange. Yeah, those scenes. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that that whole vibe just, is absolutely just hilarious. Bizarre. Hilarious, just like governmental bureaucracy commentary. So so fucking funny. And then on on a more disturbing note, um, the other wave that I really didn't recognize the first time around, that really freaked me out and like made me feel weird this time, um, was that um, it's it's so obvious. I I don't want to drag my own personal experiences into it. Not that I've ever been through anything like this, but like I know a tremendous amount of people who do, but it's very, very close allegorically to like the cycle of a drug addict and a drug addict going through rehab and coming out on the other side. Um, and in the same way, it's almost has shades of a veteran from war returning um, uh, that vibe as well, especially when Alex is released from the program and goes back home and goes to a world that he no longer recognizes. Um, mm -hmm. The drug addict thing is is like the hell of your own making. The mm -hmm. fact that when Alex gets out of rehab, there is this notion, I'm sure, amongst addicts that um, that there's a romanticized version of going to rehab and getting out just like prison. And then there's the real truth of it. The romanticized version is you go into rehab, you get out and everyone's like, good job, buddy. Uh, th good work. We, we forgive you. And then there's the real version, which I assume is you get out. Everyone fucking hates you still, and you need to go a long way to repair trust issues. Yeah, and I mean, that's the whole point of step work, right? Like sure. the making amends is is exactly that. Yeah. And that's why such a huge part of it is accepting that like people are probably not going to accept your amends. So that that for me is something that uh, you know when I was 16 didn't understand. Totally. But and now watching, I'm like, holy shit! They were really saying a lot. Yeah. Yeah. about uh, the damage you do to your life, the community around you, and the people who love you when you are on like a deep addict binge, and then what it's like to be quote-unquote reformed. And then beyond that, and this is the craziest part too, the final part of that allegory that makes sense, which I also assume is very present with addicts, is at the end of the movie – Alex still does feel these feelings mm -hmm. and still can be that person mentally, even if he's not quite doing it physically. Um, and that is another misconception about addicts that they never recover, you know, that, that they recover from the feeling of addiction. Whereas like for most addicts, it's transferred into other parts of their lives and redistributed into more positive activities. Um, so yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Dan's raising his hand. Like he's in class. He's like, actually, no, I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that, that. I think is something never occurred to me that I don't. I haven't really even really heard talked about. And again, I might be based because like. No, I assure you that was occurring to me last. <laughs> yeah, is that something that you've always felt watching the movie, or? 
Um, no, because the last time I watched the movie, I had not yet recovered from drug addiction. <laughs> right, yeah, bearing the lead, spoiler alert. Um, but... Let the game begin. The, um, no, regarding... To me, what I, I pulled from all of that, the, the genius that I pulled from this movie that I hadn't, was the overall commentary on reformism as a whole. Yes. Um, because... Totally. The, the initial scene where um, they line everyone up in the courtyard. There's a, there's a scene where it's showing, like, the prisoners getting their outside time. They're just walking around in a circle. It's big uh, Midnight Express vibes. Um, and they're all lined against the wall. The governor comes in. The, the warden's talking about how they're going to need um, more construction to build a bigger prison. And the governor is giving this whole, uh, gives him this whole little snide lecture about how they have no purpose um, to be imprisoning petty criminals. The goal here should be reformism. Mm -hmm. uh, the goal of prisons to be rehabilitatory, blah, blah, blah. So I was just like, okay, this is a kind of a dynamic that I hadn't really caught on in the past. Um, then the purpose of this program, spearheaded by the governor at this point, is to is to facilitate that it's to get more of these prisoners out into the world but then you learn all of the terrible implications of you know trying to do uh psychological conditioning and just like various shortcuts to manipulate people behaviorally rather than get it to the root of their problems and mm -hmm. it's really like a classic fucking you know it's a classic uh modern liberal solution mm -hmm. to a problem of oh yeah we want prisons to be rehabilitatory but like the solutions you present don't fucking do anything to actually fix that mm -hmm. but it makes you feel all good inside so problem solved yeah um so just the notion of other critiques of liberalism I, I noticed in the movie as oh, well yeah. which I had never fucking yeah, noticed massive. funniest one for me being and it was so fucking funny. The the writer who uh, he, you know, Malcolm McDowell originally rapes and maybe, oh, then she kills herself later. But uh, the woman that he rapes, uh, the writer who is her husband, um, his liberal quest, like in the one scene of the movie where he's like, brings him in from the rain. Yeah, he wants to it, use him as a figurehead. Uh, uh, to show the fucking atrocities of the government. Yes. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. I had a good course. time with that. Yeah. Um, but then he makes a turn that kind of turns it around. But yeah, well, Alex shouldn't have sung Singing in the Rain in the Bathtub. Yeah, that was a big mistake. That um, shot of him freaking out when he hears that is so funny. Amazing. Yeah. Also, like, reminded me of Breaking Bad, the guy in the wheelchair a lot. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, totally. The way that they shoot the guy in the wheelchair when he's freaking out yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Somebody's fucking somewhere has oh, thought yeah. of that. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway. I, I just th I just thought all that shit of just like how they were subtly shipping the idea of rehabilitation, where yeah. the ultimate messaging of the movie is that like any any government enacted methods towards rehabilitation are totally futile as long as like the societal ills as they are still exist and the prison system as it currently is still exists. The prison itself, if they are not inherently working on rehabilitation while they are in there, um, with anything other than the Bible, then like any other shit they throw at the wall is just extra bullshit it doesn't fucking help right it's fucking genius yeah and then the snake eats its own tail too there's like the Uroboros effect of um at the end when the government comes back in on the 
uh, treatment that he got. Yeah. And then attacks itself for its own publicity and uses right. him as a figurehead right. to then show that that method was incorrect and then v thus vilifying everything he did. And it, dude, it's the movie, uh, you know, I, I do find it interesting for that end cyclical nature of like, Everything he did comes back to haunt him and then he gets fixed and that haunts him. But then he, uh, because he was haunted by being fixed, gets won over on that situation. It's it's yeah. interesting to watch the waves of bullshit and bureaucracy and prison reform and just like all this nonsense yeah. kind of wash through a character who's such a piece of shit. And like, you know, the writer and his friends fucking radical goals end up being successful. It exposes the government. Public sentiment turns against them. And yeah. then the government needs to use him to get them out of trouble. Wild. It's and handled mostly through newspaper clippings. That, that's unfortunately. why like, when when you're talking about the home stretch, like being the worst part i was just like not yeah, the worst it, part it's not about worst I said, in a movie wor that's I said near worse yeah like it's like yeah it's visually not striking at all but the way yeah. all the ideas come to a head it's like the movie spent the first half world building and the second half making everything come together intellectually in a way that when i was younger i would kind of check out during that chunk well, of the movie because it was just is, not visually stimulating my problem is not that as much as what you said is not correct which is the first half the second half it's like the first third is a certain way. Yeah, I and think the, I think I find the middle third of the movie much more engaging than you right. do visually. Well, I'm saying not even that. What I'm saying is that regardless of what happens in either the first or the second quote unquote section, it's not weighted like that. Right. It's really like the first third is that. And and for me, it would have worked a little better if there was more of an evenness to those two disparate halves i would like it to be just meet me in the middle even if that means make the entire movie longer right right when it was four hours i assume two of it was yeah. pre-prison two of it was prison onward to reformation and beyond you'd have um, to imagine if kubrick was alive today we'd be getting a fucking clockwork orange director's cut that is just fire we would not because he had his assistants burn all of the unused footage oh my god isn't that wild that is wild and that brings I us to that. our trivia section dan okay and that's gonna wrap up the episode for us just a couple interesting Wait, facts. i want to give you my hot takes oh you have hot takes yeah oh, just, just one okay go ahead this movie's both better than the shining and 2001 that is terrible that is god awful but i would say that maybe there's more to be mined uh it looks better than both. Oh, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. That's fucking terrible. Mm -hmm. You should have to go home and watch the other two tonight to reaffirm that it looks better. Yeah. I think it looks great. I've watched each in the last year. Yuck. And I found a review from the time that agreed with that. I'm going to say yuck to that take, but thumbs up to all the other ones. Thanks. But at least you yucked me out on the boring episode. Yep. 10 out of 10. I got you on that. Yeah. I mean, it's... Maybe I should do like 9.5 yeah. just to show you like to start this, you know, season. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stick with uh, I believe in the Barry Lyndon episode. I said I believed Clockwork Orange to be the best Kubrick movie, despite Dr. Strangelove being my favorite. And I'm going to stick with that. Hard but fair. Yeah. <coughs> um, the balls to make this movie in 1971. Fucking hell. And it's trivia time. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the doctor standing over you Alex. Had Malcolm McDowell read it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a lot more money. Uh, one Dan to another. Um, 
The doctor standing over Alex as he's being forced to watch violent films was a real doctor, ensuring mm-hmm. that Malcolm McDowell's eyes did not dry. Uh, cut his cornea, right? <laughs> yeah, he did actually cut his cornea in. It made it so they had to film all of the eye stuff as the final shots of the movie because he couldn't stand it and yeah. didn't want to be injured. Um, uh, yeah, um, Alex performing Singing in the Rain was not scripted. We talked about that. That's not good. I probably went into a few of these, I would assume. Yeah, and I, I told you this might... You were like, don't read the IMDb page. I'm like, I oh, don't need to. Okay, how about this, Dan? <laughs> okay. Tell me if you heard this one. You're like, Malcolm McDowell broke a rib. When Malcolm McDowell met Gene Kelly at a party, you got that one? Oh, no. Nice, nice, okay. nice. I'm going to take that as a no. All right. Um, met Gene Kelly at a party several years later. Uh, Kelly turned and walked away in disgust. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, God I've, damn, I've, fuck yeah. you. <laughs> he was deeply upset about the way his signature, uh, signature from Singing in the Rain had been portrayed in Clockwork Orange. Yeah, no, I knew that. Um, Malcolm McDowell delighted in the speeded up orgy. <laughs> <laughs> Which we did not talk about, but same amazing scene. Um, yeah. Since Stanley Kubrick could not shout in, in the book, not an orgy, rape. Yeah, rape of ten-year-old girl, twelve-year-old yeah. girl. Um, Malcolm McDowell delighted in the sped-up orgy. Since Stanley Kubrick could not shout "cut" until it was over, and McDowell could accordingly do whatever he wanted during the take. Carrying the girls back to bed a second time was improvised by McDowell, much to the irritation of Kubrick, who shouted off camera, "That's enough, Malcolm. That's enough." <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Um, Malcolm McDowell rules. Although playing a 17-year-old, 19 in the latter half, uh, Malcolm McDowell was 27 years old when he filmed this movie, which is a lot older than I thought he was. Knew that. Um, Stanley Kubrick was so impressed by the voice actor who dubbed Alex in the German language version. That, <laughs> okay. Heard this one? No. Uh, that he sent a letter to dialogue director Wolfgang Stout. Uh, in the letter, Kubrick expressed his fascination in the voice of Jorg Pleva and admitted that it suited the character even more than Malcolm McDowell. Wow. Pleva was later personally selected by Kubrick to provide the German voice for Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon and Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Wow. While recording narration, Malcolm McDowell would often feel the need to stretch his legs. So to satisfy McDowell and quite possibly get better narration from him, Kubrick and McDowell would play table tennis, a sport featured in Kubrick's Lolita, 1962. And although they played many games, Kubrick never beat McDowell at table tennis a single time. McDowell was later irritated to find that his salary had been docked for hours spent playing the game. McDowell often kept Kubrick uh, highly amused by his ability to belch on command. Um, they would play chess as well since Kubrick was an excellent chess player McDowell never managed to beat him chess was a regular thing with many actors across Kubrick's films he would regularly beat George C. Scott at chess while making Dr. Strangelove uh, and also Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall on the Shining set Uh, the language spoke by Alex and his droogs uh, is obviously an invention of Anthony Burgess it is called NADSAT English and Russian slang um uh got some more trivia for you dan you love trivia and you've heard most of these a recent follow-up to clockwork orange was found in anthony burgess's home know about this one dan i remember yeah but i don't know what became of it it's called a clockwork condition it's an unfinished 200 page manuscript that expands on the themes in the original uh burgess originally sold the movie rights to mick jagger for five hundred dollars, right, five hundred bucks. Yeah. When he needed quick cash, Jagger intended to make it with the Rolling Stones as his droogs. Yeah, I knew that. But also. then resold the rights for a much larger amount. Yeah. Uh, 
Actually, I won't even go down this rabbit hole. That's please don't add this to the reasons why I hate the Rolling Stones. Love the Stones. Um, the first science fiction, f- but I'm so glad that didn't happen. That would be an absolute fucking nightmare. Yeah. Thanks. Anyway, shout um, out to Mick Jagger for making 100 percent of the royalties for Bittersweet Symphony. Goddamn right. Fuck that guy. And the Nirvana baby guy. The first science fiction film to be Oscar nominated for Best Picture. The first what film? Science fiction film. Oh. Interesting. Um, in an interview in the late 90s, Virginia Weatherthell, the topless woman who makes the reformed Alex sick on stage, said she asked Kubrick what color and kind of panties she should wear for that scene. Kubrick asked her to model a few pairs, <laughs> and so she said, did so <laughs> while topless. Then he had her go to a department store and pick up a few dozen more panties, and she modeled all of them, over and over. She had heard rumors that Kubrick was a perfectionist, so she chalked it up to that, even though a friend told her that Kubrick obviously just likes seeing her naked. Unbelievable. Malcolm McDowell claimed that Stanley Kubrick conducted screen tests of actresses for the nude scenes by having them read Shakespeare during screen tests while the camera operators zoomed in and out of close-ups of their breasts. Kubrick then had prints made of the breast close-ups so he could flip through them in a packet in his office. However, McDowell claimed that the unintended consequence of this method was that Kubrick realized he could only identify the actresses he wanted by their breasts and not their faces. Unbelievable. (laughs) It gets a little worse. Adrienne Corey, who plays the home invasion rape victim, Mrs. Alexander, said in a 1990 interview that Stanley Kubrick could be difficult, especially for women. When Corey, who was 40 at the time, auditioned for the role, she said Kubrick really liked her for the part. But he said that for the next step of the process, she had to take off all of her clothes and be photographed and videotaped. She had no issue being totally naked for the scene if cast, but wasn't going to do it during the audition. So she told Kubrick to, quote, go stuff it. He said other other actresses were doing it. God. Jesus Christ. I hate this. But she didn't care and left. Kubrick cast another actress but didn't like her. After two days, he ended... Yeah, because he didn't get to see her naked yet. He had unfinished business. (laughs) Fuck me. From one Dan to another. Um, After two days, she ended up in the hospital because the rape scene was so tough to do. Kubrick asked Corey to come back and she agreed, but she wasn't doing the nude audition. Kubrick said, suppose we don't like your tits. Yikes. So she told him, then you pay me and send me back, Stanley, but you pay me. So he agreed. So this is to a deal that if Stanley Kubrick didn't like her tits, she would be fired. Her too, am I right? (laughs) Corey said she ended up enjoying working with Kubrick and thought the rape scene was done very well. Oh, good. Happy endings all around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, During a Guardian interview in 2019, Malcolm McDowell claimed that he negotiated a salary of $100,000 and 2.5% of the profits. Have you heard this? Because this is fucking... This is actually an interesting thing. He got points on this bitch. And, and, And as this episode will say in its title featuring Malcolm McDowell, um, I figure that, um... Uh, we should end the episode talking about him because there's a reason that we haven't seen him in another Kubrick film. Um, there's a reason that the two of them didn't talk for decades. Okay. Uh, there's plenty of reasons that the two of them do not get along and he is one of the scorned. Um, uh, I hope this piece of trivia is it because I haven't read ahead. So okay. this might just be about like Malcolm McDowell like to take two showers on set. Yeah. Um, during a Guardian interview in 2019, Malcolm McDowell claimed that he negotiated a salary. Now follow this of one hundred thousand dollars and two point five percent of the profits of the film. Right. 
Kubrick told McDowell just to take the 100,000 as Warner Brothers would never agree to the percentage deal as well. Much later, McDowell bumped into a Warner's exec who said that 2.5% must be keeping his bank manager happy. Apparently, Kubrick had kept the percent for himself. Oh! For decades. And then what happened? Kubrick died. And did Malcolm McDowell sue his estate? No, I don't think so. What? Yeah. Um, and... Wow, what a fucking... That apparently really caused uh, a rift with them even further, but they hadn't talked uh, for Kubrick, many... Kubrick's Jewish, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, damn. Okay. We, we almost made it through this whole episode without you disparaging your own people. <laughs> Let the game begin. Um, well earned. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. Um, people are always... <laughs> Malcolm McDowell... Jew, Jew, my Jewish family's always like, I don't know why everyone thinks we're all money-grubbing whores. Malcolm McDowell said that Kubrick, like, had an opinion of him that he was just very young and, and like, naive, and the two of them just did not end up getting along. And, uh, yeah. It's a bummer. Yeah. Well, Kubrick. Kind of a dick. <laughs> Great movies. Um, yeah. Shout out Lolita. <laughs> and I guess that's pretty much it for you trivia. You know, honestly, all that trivia about all, like, the nude auditioning and shit, like, makes me look at Lolita a little bit differently. Yeah, what are the auditions like for that one? Yeah, what uh, is going... And, uh, and Eyes Wide Shut, all these things, and I'm like, oh, man, oh, this is no. just this is just a, Another an, an artistic genius. Another Hollywood pedophile. Eyes Wide Shut's for sure the next Kubrick movie for the podcast. To get me, dude. Pretty well, little brother. Pretty well.